This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. And welcome to Time Sensitive, a film podcast exploring the best and worst under the radar movies released in the past 18 months. I'm Sam, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Ian. Hello, and welcome to the show! In this episode, Sam and I become mind hunters and tackle the true crime genre as we buddy up to Ted Bundy with a review of Amber Seeley's 2021 drama, No Man of God. Take a listen. You think you're smarter than him. You think you're going to be the one that's going to get him to confess. I don't think I'm smarter, sir. I don't think you necessarily have to be smarter. This is what's going to happen. He will come down. He'll toy with you for a little while. Does your son know what you do? He knows his daddy protects people. He will cat and mouse with you. He will make you think you are getting somewhere. Let's record him. Let's get this party started. It is February 13th, 1986. This is Agent Bill Hagmeyer. I'm sitting with Theodore. No, Ted. I'm sitting with Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy has 13 hours to live, and he is using those hours to try and buy himself more time. He's ready to talk. He said he's ready to confess to everything, but I only talked to one person. There are families out there looking for answers. The world needs to know why he killed those girls. You're some hotshot young upstart, and I'm your next big case. You're going to be the guy who broke me. There are a lot of myths and misunderstandings about me. What are you going to tell me? Everything. If you are new to Time Sensitive, welcome. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. Yeah, our show is unique. We like to review movies not immediately upon their release like most podcasts do. (laughs) But one last time, about a year or so later, before they disappear into the history books. And we focus on those movies that might have fallen through the cracks. Not the major blockbusters or the billion dollar grocers, but the quality cinema swimming just beneath the surface. We want to talk about every element of a movie from acting and screenwriting to technical choices, music release structure and more you name it we talk about it we really dive into why these movies might be under the radar in the first place and why they might deserve more love or at the very least another watch however ian and i simply cannot do this alone so each week we welcome one of our friends to the table to review a movie with us and this week we welcome a new guest host who is no stranger to time sensitive our digital marketing director and my wife Kate Broker. First Hi, time, everybody. first time. Welcome. Yay. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> how's it feel to hear your voice over the over the airwaves? It's very weird. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, yet. usually you're upstairs during this. Yes, and yes. I can hear you through the vents upstairs. <laughs> laughing and yeah. having fun, and now you get to join us for I it. I know, it's about damn time. <laughs> <laughs> You've been with us since day one. You're our logo designer. You do all of our digital graphics because you're That's awesome. True. Yeah. You've been a, a avid supporter of the show purchasing things and spreading the word and yeah. putting up with us for four seasons of the show. So mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. The least we can do is invite you to the show. Yeah, I, I know. To talk about one of your favorite things in the entire world. Exactly. It's That's true crime with Kate Broker. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Starting a new show Spin-off here. Spin-off podcast. <laughs> Spin-off show. 
<laughs> well, as you know, Kate, we, we uh, want those who are listening to get to know you a little bit better. So we'll ask you the same questions we ask every single guest host on their first hosting gig. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Can you tell us about your earliest film memory? Go way back. Five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> my earliest memory, I think I was eight or nine. It was up in Mount Pleasant with my grandma and opa. We went to their tiny little movie theater in their little town and saw, what was it called? Rugrats Go Wild. Oh my gosh. Okay. It's a crossover between Rugrats and the Wild Thornberry. Ah, okay. <laughs> that's, yes. your, that's your first memory that's, of going That's like, what to I the remember, theater. yeah. That's fantastic. So a Nickelodeon family. Yes. Oh, I loved Rugrats. Okay. I mean, yeah. who didn't? Yeah. You kind of have to love the Rugrats. Yeah. I didn't know there was a crossover movie. Now I'm intrigued. I completely forgot until I was reading the <laughs> the synopsis uh-huh. today. But yeah, came out in 2003. So Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Long time ago. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. Animated. You... Okay. So animated, animated movies. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you've recently watched the Rugrats movies. Yes. Right? Because I have a baby and because I like the Rugrats, <laughs> I have watched two of the Rugrats movies. Oh, yeah. I think it was, the first one is just the Rugrats movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's Rugrats in, in Paris? Paris. Yeah, they go to Paris. Which is my favorite one. That's where okay. we meet Kimmy, right? Isn't Kimmy's mom from Paris? Yes. Yes. And Reptar. Reptar's really big in that oh, one. So good. <laughs> Who would have thought that we'd be talking about this? <laughs> the most <welcome>. important <laughs> things. Yes. That'll get us the listeners we All need. All of our film we origins. Bring back nostalgia. Okay. <laughs> so we need to know, we, we know your first experience. What are some of your favorite movies and how frequently do you watch movies? Some of my favorite movies, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower, I think is at the top of my list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs. Great movie. Goes really well with what we're talking about today. Yes. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Uh, Ladybird and Amelie are also on my list. Oh, what a wide variety of movies. It's kind of weird, I know. Rugrats to <laughs> Science of the Lambs, that just is the full gamut. Yeah. <laughs> and then three coming-of-age stories. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, recently, I've been watching a lot of kids' movies. Makes sense. As you sense. can tell by Rugrats. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, having a baby at home, the only time I can get things done are like the first 30 minutes of a movie. So mm-hmm. just... Today, I watched Frozen 1 and Frozen 2. <laughs> it was great. Unintentionally, but it worked out. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, seeing as we're kind of reviewing a biopic of sorts today, um, if you could pick someone to play you in a movie about your life, who would you pick and why? This was really hard, and I tried to get Sam to come up with my answer for me, uh, and that didn't work. So I chose Emma Watson. Okay. okay. Um, That's a first for us. Yeah. Uh, she's super intelligent. She's a really great advocate for, um, the causes she's passionate about. Mm -hmm. She's gorgeous, obviously. (laughs) And the most important thing that matters. Yeah. uh, I I didn't list it first. (laughs) But, uh, she also admits to being shy and socially awkward. And I really relate to that. So... I, I don't think that's a fair thing to say about you. Mm. I, I, you know, I actually was thinking of someone in my mind earlier when I think about asking you this question. I thought of, I don't remember her last name, but I think her name is Mayor May Whitman. Oh, May Whitman. Oh, May, is it May Whitman? Yeah. I think you look a lot like her. Okay. And that's I think a good she one. has the talent to, to cover the full gambit of your life to this point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the Emma Watson idea. That's a good choice. Yeah. Sam, are you, are you. Comfortable with the Emma Watson idea? Yeah, I think that's a good choice. Okay. okay. I think that fits. So Jonah Hill and Emma Watson mm-hmm. together. 
Very Fair. interesting movie. Yeah. Oscars in the in the future, I know. Well, we picked this movie, No Man of God, purposely for you, Kate. I remember we searched a number of movies to find the perfect one for you, mm-hmm. and Sam found it. Mm-hmm. So, Sam, what what about No Man of God stood out to you as perfect for a perfect subject for Kate to talk about? With yeah. Um, so, I picked this one mainly because I know your passion for true crime, uh, and that's kind of like bled over to me. I, I I'm not as quite as passionate as you are on this this topic, but. I have gotten into it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to listen to the podcasts. We went and saw My Favorite Murder Live twice now. I think so, yeah. Yeah, we've seen them twice. Uh, who, and they just make jokes and talk about a true crime story, mm-hmm. which I think is is fantastic. It's probably what we're going to end up doing a little bit of today. Yeah. Um, but like Ted Bundy is one of the most well-known serial killers of yeah. all time. Mm-hmm. And it kind of felt like... If we were going to get you in, we were going to get you in with one of the big names. And this one definitely flew under the radar. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, just, I watched the trailer and I was like, this kind of feels different okay. than like your standard serial killer movie. So I was like, let's just see if it's available and we'll try to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my main reasoning behind it. Well, I, I think this is a great pick. I'm so excited. Because we, we looked for a lot of true crime stuff, and there was nothing that really just sparked our interest the way that this movie did. And there's so much to talk about outside of the movie itself right. yeah. that we think will be a fun conversation. But as always, if you are 30 years late to uh, the Ted Bunny saga <laughs> uh, and would like to know more, we're going to spoil a few things for you. So Sam, hit him with a little bit of a disclaimer before we get started. Absolutely. Uh, the great thing about Time Sensitive is that you don't need to have seen No Man of God to listen to our discussion. Sure, it helps, but it's not required. We get it, your time is sensitive, and everyone is busy. So we did the hard part and watched the movie for you. Sit back and let us tell you if it's worth your time, seeing that we don't shy away from anything, this is your spoiler alert. However, if you don't want us to spoil the movie for you, and you have not already seen No Man of God, pause this episode right now and check it out from your local library like we did, or buy or rent it from Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, or any of the standard pay-to-play streaming platforms. No Man of God is not, as of this recording, streaming on any major subscription-based platforms. No Man of God has a runtime of 1 hour and 40 minutes. It is not rated, um, but it features language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for younger audiences. And if you've ever wondered what it means to, for a movie not to be rated, basically the MPA rating system is voluntary. You don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of small uh, productions like this one who don't have the funds will not submit their movies to get an MPA rating. Ah. So it's, it's not that the movie is bad or it didn't do something in time. Mostly it's a, it's a financial constriction because you have to pay to submit it. Oh, okay. So they that figure sense. that they can get an audience regardless and they'll do this. So it kind of avoids that uh, whole extra expenditure on the budget. But uh, who knows why they chose not to do it on this one. But I don't think it changes much for them. Uh, But just so you know, it is a Ted Bunny story. So there's a lot of violent talk in there. So make sure you're prepared for that. And probably not suitable for kids under the age of 17 if you were to pick an age range. Sure. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't care. We we say a lot of bad words on the show anyway. (laughs) Fuck it. Uh, But let's get started. It's Bill and Ted in a not-so-excellent adventure. You get that? It's it's quite it's quite funny if you if you listen more. But the bill in this case, the bill in this case is FBI profiler Bill Hagmeyer, and the Ted is notorious serial killer Ted Bundy. And the Knox Excellent Adventure is Ted's final days on death row. A bit of background here to help you understand why this story is so captivating for audiences because it's continually made all the time. 
Ted Bundy terrorized the Pacific Northwest through the 1970s. He allegedly began murdering women in Washington State, where he was nearly caught after being identified by his then-girlfriend, Liz Kendall. However, as the crimes predated the sophisticated forensic science of today, Bundy continued his string of murders in Oregon, Idaho, Utah, and Colorado, the latter of which he was finally arrested for kidnapping and convicted. After being connected to a murder in Colorado, Bundy escaped police custody by jumping from the second-story window of an Aspen courthouse. The second story. Yeah, wild. Not not the first story, the second story. Free <laughs> no. jumped. Mm-hmm. Free solo in different ways. Um, he was picked up by police after six days on the lam, and he escaped again. Yeah. Less than six months later by crawling through a ceiling in a Colorado Springs jail. Not once, but twice. But I think twice. that's he what escaped. makes his story so interesting yeah part of why one of the many reasons why but he was able to elude police in custody twice yeah just blows my mind Mm -hmm. uh he soon became one of fbi's most wanted fugitives following his second escape but over the next weeks bundy migrated to florida Uh, by the way he passed through ann arbor michigan uh a local favorite here a little too close to home a little too close to home (laughs) we weren't alive yet no worries um but he uh, after that he made his way down to florida where he invaded the chi omega sorority house on the campus of florida state university beating and assaulting five victims and killing two of them before killing his final victim 12 year old kimberly diane leach he was later arrested following a traffic violation and served as his own defense attorney in a truly wild trial the first ever televised nationally in the united states he was found guilty of his Florida crimes and sentenced to death. That is where No Man of God first encounters Bundy. In the days before his execution in 1989, he confessed to 30 murders and sexual assaults, 20 of which have been confirmed, but many believe his total victims could tally into the triple digits. Bundy is cemented and arguably the most famous, notorious seal killer in United States history. However, No Man of God claims to be more about the then-fledging art of profiling than it is about Ted Bundy mm-hmm. himself, setting the movie apart from the nearly 50 film, television, and document- documentary adaptations chronicling his story. Profiling, of course, has been captured on TV in 15 seasons of Criminal Minds, <laughs> and uh, more non-fictionally in Netflix's Mindhunters, which was executive produced by David Fincher, Yes, among many, many other 60-minute montages and profiles, Making a Murder on Netflix. Yeah. It's all over the place. No Man of God is the fourth feature film from actor-turned-director Amber Seeley and the first in which she did not write the screenplay. Her other features are things you've never heard of, 2008's A Plus D, 2011's How to Cheat, and 2016's No Light and No Land Anywhere. The script was written by horror writer C. Robert Cargill under the pen name Kit Lesser. Gargill is known for writing the Sinister film franchise. Okay. Which is a flex. And 2016's Doctor Strange, the Marvel superhero movie. What a weird <laughs> list of credits. All over the place, one might say. Uh, no Man of God is best described, however, as a mental swordplay or a dance between Bill Hagmeyer and Ted Bundy. The screenplay is based on their actual recordings and conversations from 1985 to 1989. This is the first movie we've profiled on Time Sensitive Now that was actually produced during the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, okay. Meaning uh, everything else we've talked about before was filmed either previous to it or uh, was was well in production sure. before. Uh, by the way, no positive tests during the entire filming of No Man of God. That's impressive. They were very pr- uh, proud yeah. of that fact. And it premiered at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival and was released by distributor RLJE Films on August 27th, 2021. So, let's get into a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, Kate, you're a huge fan of, of Ted Bundy and true crime, so why yeah. don't you give us a little bit of a plot let's, summary. You're a fan of Ted Bundy. Let's clarify. <laughs> you're I'm a groupie. not a fan of Ted Bundy. I am a fan of true crime. Yes. 
his story is fascinating. Yes. Not a fan. And we've done true crime before. We we did kind of uh, an ancillary version. We did uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which right. covers the Manson murders. Yep. And that was kind of, I think, the last movie that we really had real people or actors playing real people. Exactly. Um, yeah. So this is kind of a, another new thing for us to dive into. But why don't you give those who, who have watched it and it's been a while or those who have never seen a little summary of what the movie's about. All right. In 1980, Ted Bundy was sentenced to death by electrocution. In the years that followed, he agreed to disclose the details of his crime, but only to one man. During the early days of the FBI's criminal profiling unit, analyst Bill Hagmeyer met with the incarcerated Bundy in the hopes of understanding the psychology of, a, of the serial killer and providing closure for the victim's families. As Hagmeyer delves into Bundy's dark and twisted mind, a strange and complicated relationship develops that neither man expected. Right now, Sam, why don't you just tell us the skinny? What's this basically about? Yeah, basically, a tall man with graying hair sends a small, wide-eyed rookie on a long journey with a piece of jewelry where he must face off with the epitome of evil head-to-head. He thinks he's so funny. (laughs) We get what you're doing there. You do? Yeah, I do. It's been 20 years, by the way, the anniversary of uh, the first Lord of the Rings. Oh, perfect. As of this recording. But yes, there are comparisons, definitely. Some parallels between Lord of the Rings, because the bug-eyed guy is in both of them. Yep. Elijah Wood. But yes, you're very similarly, it's very close. Yeah, I would think so, right? Kate, your description was much better. I, I, because you (laughs) wrote it. (laughs) I didn't write it, I stole it from the advertising. Uh, But let's talk about our first impressions here. We had the fun opportunity of watching this all together. Yeah, Yeah. we don't get to do that much. No. I, I love when we can. Yeah, it's so fun when we all get to do it together. And and Kate and I seem to be very similarly inclined on our on our first impressions. And Sam, you had other ones. So Kate, why don't you go as the first time co-host? Tell us what you thought. It was boring. <laughs> <laughs> my immediate reaction was it was very dull. I wrote that in my notes. Okay. Probably like thirty minutes in. Mm-hmm. Um, so not great. I think there's a <laughs> there's far better content out there about Bundy. Okay. Just go watch a documentary mm-hmm. or go watch sure. Mindhunter that basically it talks about the profiling. Mm-hmm. And well, that's their show. We can wrap <laughs> it up. We've decided no, it's not Kate worth Kate says time. it's not worth it. We were terrible at picking a movie for her. Yeah. <laughs> go watch something else. <laughs> Sam, what did you think? Yeah, I was intrigued with this one um, just because it was very different than what most serial killer movies go toward yes it's not it's not going into the blood and gore like a lot of movies tend to do yep and it is it is slow it is really slow but i i was captivated for a good portion of this movie i didn't i don't think i had the same reaction as you two finding it boring i thought there were some moments in there uh i think it's forgettable mm-hmm. but i think yeah. there's some moments in there that are are really well acted and very captivating for how minimalistic it is okay okay yeah i I thought there was some technique in here that that we'll talk about in in a little bit that i thought was innovative in some ways but really when you're doing something for the 50th time it's hard to stand out exactly and i think that was the more of the the problem i had with this was like you said sam it's it's forgettable there are plenty of others as kate said that you can learn more about both the art of profiling and ted bundy in a much more entertaining way but I, am, I almost fell asleep. Your couch was so comfortable. <laughs> um, I was not a fan of these prolonged one-on-one dialogue scenes, which were probably 40% of the was, movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. a good portion of it. And Elijah Wood is just not convincing in an authoritative role to me. 
like he felt like a little kid and it just it, the the dynamic the dynamic of the two sure. felt so uncomfortable yeah okay. which i know there's part of that is intentional but i also just did not like there's no way i was thinking this guy was this fbi analyst regardless of whether okay. he was a rookie or not they don't put people like that in the field that's a good point. That was my interpretation of things. But let's talk about where this takes place because unlike other Bundy films that can kind of trace his movements all the way from Seattle all the way down uh, to Florida, this one really takes place in one uh, entire set uh, for the whole movie. The The date time period, though, was over four or five years, 1985 to 1989, mm-hmm. uh, Bundy's final years on death row. I think he's actually convicted in 1981, and he spends those remaining years right. on death row through many appeals that he's trying to... Uh, trying to stay his execution in his final years were the most uh, uh, out there attempts to do so. But we're in Florida State Prison, just outside of Bradford County, Florida, uh, which is, for those who know the area, it's about an hour southwest of Jacksonville, so it's the north side of okay. Florida. It's now known as the Union Correctional Institution, so it's changed names over time, but it's the largest prison uh, in Florida State. And it has an illustrious history because uh, Ted Bundy is not the only person that has been executed there. It's the same prison in which Eileen Warnos was executed by lethal injection in 2002. If you recognize that name, it's uh, the same uh, person who's the star or the feature of the movie Monster with Charlize Theron. Okay. Char- Charlie- Theron, Charlize Theron <laughs> is in it. But no, Charlize Theron plays Eileen Warnos. She's, uh, I believe, uh, one of the only women ever executed uh, in Florida state history. Interesting. Yeah. You um, think they got some plaques? I feel like that prison would have, like, it's Florida. <laughs> Do you think they have some plaques for I these wouldn't people? doubt it. They're probably gator teeth engraved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but another uh, famous uh, execution that took place there was back in 1933, and that was of Giuseppe Zangara, who was the person who attempted to assassinate President-elect Franklin D. Roosevelt. He ended up missing and shot five others, including Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak, who died. Uh, But for that crime, Giuseppe was executed again by Old Sparky in 1933. Um, So Old Sparky is kind of a joke, but um, electrocution was the primary form of execution in Florida. Actually, the sole means of execution in Florida from 1924 to 2000. There's a break in there in the 70s when they actually... uh, uh, went away from the death penalty. Oh, okay. It's it back in because, you know, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have not had any uh, people uh, elect to use the electric chair since 1999. Now they use lethal injection, but it is an option if you're interested. It's and on still death an row. option today. Yes. It's not wow. something that can be put upon you. Like you can't be assigned the electric, the election or the election chair, the <laughs> electric chair. Uh, but it is something that you can option yourself if you'd like to. Interesting. It actually stopped in 1999 after uh, a very famous execution was botched, and it was very graphically violent for those mm. in the room, oh and God. it was uh, the person didn't really die right off. They bled from all different orifices, wow. and they caught on fire. It was a very graphic uh, execution. I don't know why I need to get into that. You but didn't, but... Uh... <laughs> we don't have any gore in the movie, so let's talk about it otherwise. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's where we're, that's where this movie takes place. The, the entire movie takes place these final five years of his life in Florida. So let's talk about the characters that we're yeah. talking about in this movie, though, because this really is a very simple character study yeah. of two famous people. So Kate, or excuse me, Sam, why don't you tell us about the first character of our two character study? Sure thing. Uh, Elijah Wood plays our first character, and that's Bill yeah. Hagmeyer, the main character, uh, basically, of this movie, and probably the only really big star in this movie yeah. as well. You probably recognize him from Lord of the Rings. He played Frodo Baggins. That's kind of where I got that from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deep Impact uh, in 1998. Bobby from 2006. Grand Piano in 2013. Some of these movies I have never seen. Um, it's and a shame. <laughs> I don't feel at home any. Uh, 
I don't feel at home in this world anymore in 2017, mm -hmm. which was a Sundance winner. Yes. Um, he was in the Happy Feet franchise. He was the lead vocal role in that one. He was the um, main penguin. <laughs> an illustrious career, yeah. if ever there was one. And if you want to see one of his first roles, he was in Back to the Future 2 yes, as I think a that's child. that's his first role. Yes. Yeah. Really? He, was, uh, he had one line, I think, in the entire yeah. movie. He um, was nominated for like Best Young Actor Awards for like 20 years because he looks like he's 12. He looks like he's 12 <laughs> still today. Um, but he is a producer from Spectre Vision. Yes. Uh, you may recognize that from movies like Mandy mm -hmm. and Color Out of Space. Two movies that are nothing like this movie in any way, shape, or form. But we talked about them anyway, so go yes. back and listen to those episodes. They're a lot of fun. Um, you'll next see him in The Toxic Avenger, uh, directed by Macon Blair, starring Peter Dinklage. Yes, Peter Dinklage is having a year. He really is. And I, so I cannot excited. wait to see Serrano. As of this recording, I've not yet seen it. Uh, but he is getting some best actor buzz for oh, his be awesome. role in that musical. Uh, but then he's doing the Marvel thing. So who knows? I don't, I, is a Toxic Avenger Marvel? It's a superhero thing. It's a superhero thing. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? No one cares. <laughs> well, let's talk about Bill Hagmeyer. Let's talk about Bill that's the character. Um, he is an FBI special agent, behavior science unit. Yeah. He's a rookie. He's yeah. the new guy. Bundy calls him a Hoover disciple on his high horse. Yeah. Um, he's, he's pretty humble. He's unassuming. He's disarming. Uh, I think he's pretty clever as well. He, oh, yeah. he he is definitely playing tactics from moment one when he he starts talking with Bundy. Movie uh, definitely made this like he was like just thrown into this or like no one else wanted Bundy and he just kind of like well I'll raise my hand and give it a go. Yeah, I have some Sam slams about that because that makes <laughs> okay. me frustrated. Okay. Uh, but he made it made him the ideal Bundy interviewer. Yeah. Uh, he who distrusted the FBI as a whole. Yes. Um. So it was kind of nice to have him in there and and kind of play him just a little bit yes. to get a little bit more information. Uh, he's not looking for evidence. He's looking for understanding. Yeah, is he what tried he to set that Ted, stage very clearly. Which I felt like was bullshit from moment one. <laughs> um, which it, it, I guess he wasn't entirely looking for evidence, but it would have been nice. Like, they would have <laughs> taken that evidence if it was there. He he considered it a purely academic pursuit. Yeah, that was that was his, his uh, resume to him was... I, I have really nothing to get out of this other than learning from you. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, the the FBI was on this this whole train of trying to interview serial killers, rapists, child abusers to learn more about what drives someone to do this. That was the whole intent. Yeah. So the reason we have shows like Criminal Minds today is because of the work of people like Bill Hagmeyer. Absolutely, and he is a father. It's something that he's able to bond with Bundy about, which was disgusting because yeah, Kate, as you know. Uh, Bundy's child was conceived while in prison with a groupie fan. Yeah. Um, it, by the way, she she's still alive. Oh, is uh, she? His daughter, yes. I don't know about his, this, the, her mother, but this woman is still alive and has to live with that for the rest of her life. I don't know much about her, but just... The, and then the fact he's like, he, he, he even says, uh, you got to be careful with your daughter because there's a lot of crazy men out there. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that was kind of a creepy line to hear yeah. him say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the things that... Based on the context we get, that anything that Bundy said was taken in a way that's like, oh, yes, this is slimy, this is gross, I don't yep. like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, uh, Bill was considered Bundy's best friend in the final years of Bundy's life. A friend is someone who wants to understand. Yeah, he kept saying that. Yeah. It, it was creepy when he referred to him as his best friend, and Bill was just kind of like, what? Who me? <laughs> like yeah. he was like, Bill had no connection with him whatsoever. I think. 
that the movie tries to equate them in a way that I think is unfair. Bill yeah. always had the upper hand in this conversation through all these years, regardless of his rookie status. They made him seem unassuming in all of this. Yeah, yeah it was all an act. Yes. They yeah. were playing each other. And and that's one of the problems I had. And I think we'll talk about it a little more in technical elements. Mm-hmm. But like the 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 thought of Bill like turning is, is like something that's like yeah. under the entirety of this movie. It's kind of sitting in the background of all this movie. It was like he could do it, too. And I was like, yeah, eh, I don't think that's really the case. <laughs> yeah. It might not be as simple as a couple of interviews to, to be away from that. But well, let's talk about the other half of that. Kate, tell us about Ted Bundy. Luke Kirby plays Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. You may recognize them from The Marvelous Miss Maisel, which I watched all every single episode and I had no idea that was him. <laughs> really? Not a clue. Do, um, is he like is he on makeup or something or he doesn't look like himself? No idea. Oh, okay. I you just, just don't recognize didn't him. Didn't recognize okay. him. Okay. That's funny. I okay. never heard the name before, so this was a, a surprise to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um he plays comedian Lenny Bruce in mm-hmm. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh and he is a winner of the Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Comedy. He is also in Take This Waltz uh, from 2011 opposite Michelle Williams, Seth Rogen, and Sarah Silverman. Did you ever watch that movie? Never heard of Sarah it. Sarah Polly directed it. it. it it's, it's one of those things that's on Netflix all the time and I see the poster come up but I never really mm. watch it. Um I love Sarah Silverman in almost anything she does, and I especially in the dramatic roles. I know there's an old movie that, or not old movie, but now it's a, an older movie called that she's in called I Smile Back, and she really shows her dramatic side. Interesting, okay. very impressive as as a as a performer. But tell us more about the character of Ted Bunny. I mean, we know a ton, but but tell us yes. about him. So Ted is known as a sexy criminal savant. <laughs> um, he's described, I think, in the movie as charming, young, and handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's great at gaining the trust of people. Um, you can see that when he's, when he escapes for the first time in Mm -hmm. the law library, they trusted him enough to let him be by himself in the courthouse with, I mean, it's not the best way to exit a building, but it's (laughs) definitely an exit. Most assume that someone will not jump from a second story building. And he's not in shackles or any kind of restraints when he does it either. Well, a lot of that was because he was serving as his own uh, defense attorney and he kind of had the leeway to do that because he was granted those rights as that uh, role. But yeah, he definitely used his, his good looks, which I don't think he was that good looking overall. Maybe for the time. I don't know. (laughs) He's a 70s 10, but he's a (laughs) 2020s 7. Yeah. Um, yeah, he claims to have had a normal childhood, but if you watch some of the documentaries and read a little bit more into it, that's far from the truth. Um, There's a whole collection of lore around him. Oh, yeah. Like the, the, what's true, what's not. And he, cause he, in, in the scene, we see him talking with Dr. Dobson about his childhood was perfect and there was no reason. Cause right. that was the first thing you'd always go back to psychologically is what happened to you in your childhood yeah. that traumatized you. Well, he doesn't lead into the fact that his, he never knew his father. Mm-hmm. There was never, I don't even think his mom knew who his father was. And if she did, she didn't want to admit to it. Mm-hmm. There are rumors that it was actually her father that abused her and that her father, his, Ted's grandfather was his father. So there's a lot of messed up stuff going on there. Oh, yeah. Who knows what could have been the the solution there? But not to say that that's the the reason. But he definitely tried to tone those things down to come across as normal as he could. Yeah. His biographer Ann Rule wrote a very famous book about him. Mm-hmm. It's sitting on my nightstand. I did not read it in preparation <laughs> for this. We had it ready to go, and it just it just didn't didn't have enough time to open yeah. it up. No. Um, she is quoted as saying. 
um, calling him a sadistic psychopath who took pleasure from other humans' pain and the control he had over his victims to the point of death and even after. Um, And I think that even after, he would go back years later Mm -hmm. on the weekend and he would go back to that mountain. I can't remember what mountain it was. Yeah, in Washington State. Yeah, and just sit next to his victims Sit that with were his up victims. there yeah. and do other things oh um, yeah he was he was a disgusting person yeah yeah, yeah there's a lot of things there mm-hmm. um his attorney or a attorney yeah it was his his one of his uh, defense attorneys in his first trial okay so his attorney polly nelson said ted was a the very definition of heartless evil yeah she wasn't writing good things in his yearbook, let's say. No, <laughs> nobody was really excited to be around this no. guy. And, and the thing that's so fun about No Man of God is we see a different Ted Bundy. Uh, it, Kate, you've watched a number of the Ted Bundy movies and documentaries as I have. Yep. And he's he's portrayed as this very handsome, uh, knows everything, very smart guy. He was a, a lawyer. Um, he served as his own, in his own defense, but he was not like a practicing lawyer by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he knew enough of the law to be dangerous, but not enough to of course save himself but we see him a very different light in no man of god and i think that was intentional trying to set this movie apart from these other adaptations Mm -hmm. of his story but we see him as afraid and insecure he is desperately attempting to stay his execution to stay alive i think when he gets the the final days he's like okay nothing's gonna work uh the the dr dobson interview was his like last shot to make this work and it didn't work so um, he's he's very defeated throughout the movie, and I actually felt Luke Kirby played him very weakly. Yeah, yeah. And I thought I thought that was a really nice way to like. I thought it was a very interesting way to do it hmm. because you don't you you see the clips of Bundy and you see uh, all the video that's out there of him being very very confident, mm-hmm. but that's all before he's convicted. Yes, you don't really see much of him after he's convicted, and that's where he like. He's been in jail, I think, the first time we meet him, like, four years already. Yeah. Yeah. So, And he's not going anywhere. His escape attempts aren't going to work out, I don't think, this time. They're no. they're planning around that. So he has no escape, and he's kind of just... he He's resigned to the, the place where he is, and he is completely lost and defeated. And I think that broken man makes this character and this portrayal very, very interesting. It's definitely different than what we've seen yeah. before. I just don't know if Luke convinced me of it or not. I mean, he gets he's been praised a lot for this performance and I don't know, I, I maybe it's because I only see that really aggressive and cocky. I think it's even more than confidence. I think it's cockiness. Sure. Um, that that I'm used to seeing. Even just going back to the actual video of when the Florida prosecutor served him the papers in front of all the cameras, mm-hmm. and he tries to like basically take over the press conference. Yeah, that's the kind of Bundy that I'm seeing in my mind. Uh, but we almost kind of see uh, a victimized Bundy in a way. Granted, he's trying to portray himself as that way, so you never really know. Is this a calculated character that he's playing, or is it? A, is he actually experiencing these feelings of of longing and insecurity? Uh, but that's the thing with Luke Kirby's performances I didn't feel those were genuine feelings no. and maybe that's because he was trying to do it that way he was trying to show that his weakness can only come off as ingenuine because he was such a sadistic person yeah. who knows I just didn't quite convince me okay um, same with Elijah Wood so all, the funny thing is these two performances were so lauded and I just didn't wasn't convinced by either of them not a fan okay. no that's, that's fair 
Yeah, but really, this is a two-person story. There's the, everyone else is very minimal, but just in case you recognize some faces, Boardwalk Empire's Alexa Palladino plays Bunny's final defense attorney, Carolyn Lieberman. She's the really the only named female in the whole movie, mm-hmm. um, and she's seen kind of organizing the last few days of his calendar. Um, and then we see Boston Legal and CSI Miami's Christian Clemenson, who I recognize his face, but I have no idea who he was. He plays Dr. James Dobson, the attention-seeking evangelist who interviewed Ted Bundy on the eve of his execution. Talk right. about that for timing. Uh, but So if you recognize some of those faces, those oh, where you might recognize them from. But let's get into talking about some of our favorite scenes or lines from this movie, because where I thought the strength was this was the screenplay. Uh, and there were some very interesting scenes, Sam, that you liked that Kate and I didn't. And I think Kate yes. and I enjoyed that you didn't. So, Sam, why don't you start off with some of your favorite scenes or lines? Yeah, in my opinion, the one-on-one scenes are the best part of this movie. Hmm. Um, with like, It's not even close from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what makes them work so well is the ability for them to play off of each other so uh, and having the camera slowly moving. There are no distractions Mm-mm. in these scenes. And I thought for a second that that might make it boring, which maybe it did for some viewers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. But I thought it, it kept me on the edge of my seat. Now, the dialogue itself, I thought was forgettable. I don't remember any hmm. specific lines that either of them said. Mm-hmm. I remember talking about the fishing story and stuff being being deep. But I think the intensity of having Ted Bundy sitting across from you at a table, even though I knew nothing was going to happen, because I've, I've heard this the Ted Bundy story mm-hmm. before. Yeah. I know what happens to him. You know he's not going to jump across the table and try to strangle this e- guy. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I knew that, but I was still on the edge of my seat during the entire... Uh, the entirety of, I think there's three full... Four, four actually. Four yeah. full mm-hmm. one-on-one interviews. And and that was my favorite thing of the whole movie. And Kate, maybe that's maybe we're, we set ourselves up for failure there because we watch a lot of Lauren SVU and mm-hmm. people are often jumping across interrogation yeah, tables. Yeah, it was, it was just boring. There was nothing <laughs> happening. Was there anything that you did like, though? Any, any scenes or lines that stood out to you? Yeah, there was actually one of the scenes that I actually remember from mm-hmm. one of the interviews... Um, there's a point when Ted asks or demands Bill to turn off the recorder. And mm. the way he says it is just, that was the one moment where I actually felt like a really sinister feeling from him. It gave me chills. Um, yeah, that's the only time I ever sensed any real evil in his character, which is what I wanted to see. Okay. Because I think of Bundy as the ultimate evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to see the villainous side more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's I. Fair. Yeah, I didn't believe that he was broken down or... Oh, so you thought it was all an act. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. He was playing us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, any lines or anything that stood out to either of you? Um, I had one where uh, Bill is talking to Carolyn, the uh, the defense attorney, mm-hmm. and he, uh, she responds back to him with, has anyone ever told you to go home to your kids? Because Bill tells Carolyn... Oh, you need you need to relax. You need to c- calm down. It's okay that you didn't win this case. Go home to your kids. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's such a bullshit line that you only <laughs> tell a woman, yeah. especially in in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, I thought her rebuttal to that was awesome. I yeah. thought that was just a great line. She had some feistiness in her. Really did, yeah. And I, I liked that character. Kate, any lines that stood out for you? Yeah. Uh, normal people kill people. This was, I think, the most terrifying line of the whole movie. Yeah. 
it, it made me question things. So I have to ask the question, mm-hmm. do normal people kill people? Because I, this isn't reference. He's, he's talking to Bill, and this is one of the one-on-one scenes. Um, and he talks about choices and mistakes. And, and our, my question is, are we all just one choice or mistake away from being like Ted? I think that's the whole point of the movie is trying to say that we could be. But he says, I'm tired of people saying that I'm crazy. Normal people kill people too. And, and I guess that mix, I was always under the impression from watching so many Criminal Minds that you have to be some sort of mentally disturbed person to take another person's life intentionally. Not talking about like you, you, know, you hit Not, someone in a car accident and you kill okay. them that way, but like you intentionally kill someone. You have to be something's wrong with your head. And we seem to find a justification for that in every murder scenario that we hear about. Because we need it. Yes. Right? Yeah. We, we need it to be that only people with um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, mental illness is going to kill somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think to do something to the degree, not even to that level of Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. there needs, they're not normal people. Yes. There, yeah. there is something going on. I, I do think that at times normal people do kill people and, and they don't have the mental illness that, uh, that we're so desperate, desperately craving all the time. I think cr- crimes of passion happen all the time. Mm. And and you'll see that in basically every forensic files, the yeah. husband always did it every single time. <laughs> but uh, not every one of those husbands can possibly have a mental disability or a mental a mental illness well, that's that we what, can uh, explain away. In the court of law, it's kind of changed to an like a um, immediate mental lapse or something. I don't know what they call it anymore. Yeah. But like the temporary insanity is yeah. now the thing because no way that someone this good looking or this driven or this educated could do that. And that's kind of what he was able to play off his entire life, right, yeah. Kate? So, Kate, do you think normal people kill people? Absolutely. I think the majority of killers are normal people. Mm. Um, Ted Bundy and serial killers like that are not the, not the norm. They're special. I want to say mm. there's a, yeah, they're unique. Yes. They're, unique they're, there's is very, the word I'm there's very for. few, yes. few of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I see, I just think you have to be some sort of mentally ill to do something like this, to look at someone else and take that life. It just me, just, you have to be a little bit of crazy in some way. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think with serial killers, they are so calculating mm-hmm. to be able to do do this so frequently. Yeah. Um, and to have a, a body count similar to this, you you have to have some wires that aren't connected mm-hmm. properly. And I totally agree with you on that. And it doesn't have to be a mental illness. It could be uh, an extreme intelligence as well. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think that that is different. I think those those things kind of run hand in hand. Sure. Your brain is different than others. And I think maybe you're right there, Kate. It's a uniqueness more so than it is anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I have a couple of things that really stood out to me. The first is, I think I mentioned this already, the the conversation that Ted and Bill have about choices versus mistakes. Mm-hmm. And this is what really kind of threw me off is he's talking about Kim Leach, the, his final victim, the 12-year-old. And he says, I never should have killed a 12-year-old girl. That was a mistake. And then, and then uh, Bill responds to that by saying, well, what about the other women that you killed? Those were choices. And to me, that was just the most eerie thing to hear someone say yeah. that, oh, yeah, I miss, I'm, I was just messing when I killed the 12-year-old girl. That was like, yeah. who I fell into my own thing there. These other ones were all people that I, des- I decided to do. Um, but I, I thought that was a really interesting back and forth between the two of them uh, because he, he specifically was saying that as soon as he wasn't able to tell himself no, when he had the urge, because he talks about all these urges that he had mm-hmm. to kill and he had stalked other people to try to assume their, their schedule and, and take advantage and, and murder them. And, but he said as 
soon as I tried to tell myself no and I couldn't do it, I knew that's when I was done. So I saw a number of conversations uh, related to Ted Bundy about how serial killers are never really caught. They always kind of elect to be caught. Right. And I think that's kind of the point that he reached. And I'm kind of thinking about that. Again, this is before FBI profiling became a thing. Profilers don't find people. They kind of just create what that person would be like and try mm-hmm. to narrow the, the suspect pool down, which is what they try to do in the Ted Bundy case as well, going off his name and his automobile make and stuff. But even when he matched all that, they said he couldn't possibly be the person Couldn't be do him. Um, but I just, I find that interesting of how they choose to turn themselves in at one point or another. And I like that discussion. And I wonder if that was an actual thing that he said in the transcript uh, of their conversations because I think that gives a lot of insight into the mental stability and the, the mental acuity of a serial killer as well. So then my favorite scene in the whole thing was the interview between uh, Ted and Dr. James Dobson. And uh, I don't think either of you knew who Dr. Dobson was before we started watching the movie. I did not. Okay, Kate did. Um, and I tried to dig in a little bit more about him because he plays such a significant role in the story and he's such a weird figure in history. So the actual interview between the two of them took about 45 minutes and it was a scheduled interview. Dr. James Dobson, was or is he's still alive was uh, is a fundamental christian psychologist he's the founder of an organization called focus on the family which is an organization with a history of advocating for conversion therapy and that homosexuality is both preventable and treatable among its promotion of creationism abstinence only sex education uh and school prayer basically anything socially conservative this guy is for Mm -hmm. um Uh, But Ted's final con was to use this interview to declare that he was a victim of pornography. And I liked how this movie, No Man of God, went back to him and Bill having the same conversation Mm -hmm. where he said, yeah, pornography did nothing to me. That It was just a a fun thing to do. And then he talks with Dr. Dobson, who's at the time his crusade was against pornography, was to say that the crime that we were seeing in, in the United States in the 1970s and 80s was all because of this free access to pornography. It was because more prolific than it was before. Um, so Ted conned him into getting this favor because uh, Ted was trying to get the favor of the governor of Florida to uh, stay his execution. Right. And Dobson at the time had a connection with the governor. So he was kind of thinking if he could get Dobson on his side by basically spoon feeding his argument to him in this interview with the most notorious serial killer ever, he might get a favor done in his uh, for him. Um, but he was he's crying, porn made me do it and all this stuff to try to buy time. Of course, it didn't work. This is the same argument, just to kind of give context to uh, what video games are to school shootings today. You know, every school shooter played video games or he listened to Marilyn Manson music or whatever that bullshit excuse is now. Um, that, that was kind of what this was in the, in the 1980s as well. So this was this interview was actually a culmination of a years-long correspondence between Ted and Dr. Dobbs, and they had been writing back and forth, and Ted actually in, asked him to come and interview him in the prison, um, and it was the, the whole point of this was to try to stay his execution. It ended up making Dr. Dobson a lot of money. Of course it did. A lot of money for Focus on the Family uh, to go and convert gay people and whatever way that he thought was possible. Then this the scene kind of transitions as the two are talking, uh, kind of eating each other up in a way. I, it's kind of weird in Ted Bundy context, but mm. they're, they're just kind of loving each other's awesomeness is really how the interview is going. Dr. Dobson's like sternly agreeing with everything Ted is saying. Ted realizes that he's got his putty in his hands. But mm. then the camera purposely shifts to this production assistant and she becomes the focus, the score, this ominous score for the first time in the movie, which starts off as kind of the synth score, turns into this ominous string score and it becomes very loud 
And, and we realized that I, I kind of wrote in my notes, why is the camera going on her? Yeah. And after thinking about this and reading more about it, I found this great uh, description in uh, The Daily Grindhouse, which said, the camera zooms in on her slowly as Bundy's dialogue becomes muffled. What he's saying doesn't matter anymore, both because it's, it isn't true and because no complicated psychological explanation would make a difference. What matters is how she reacts to being in the room, watching and listening to him speak about violent crimes against women. She pulls her clipboard closer to her body, instinctively adopting a defensive posture and begins crying. The only people anyone is listening to are the self-important men who talk for hours without saying anything that matters. There is no true justice to be found here and no one is asking the right questions or focusing on the right people. So I, I like that interpretation of what this one single camera angle is doing. I'm thankful for that because I did not understand what the point of this was. That was one of my favorite technical elements really? of this okay. entire movie is is that zooming in on this one person. Because it's like, yeah, we're, we're talking to Ted. We're consistently talking about Ted. We're using his name over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Who are the important people in this situation? Yes. Mm-hmm. It is the women that are having to live in fear because of it. And the fact that she just has to sit there and listen, yeah. I think, is, is what that's trying to show. Mm-hmm. Uh, film critic Nolan Barth says, she shows us fascination, guilt, disgust, and fear in 30 seconds. And I think that that's, that's a great way of showing it. Because mm-hmm. she, at one point, she represents us. Like, she's intentively listening. Yep. And then I think she starts to feel the coldness in the room of these two men talking about heinous acts of sexual violence against women. One trying to talk them away as justification from something else. The other trying to talk them away as a way to save his own life. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet, here is the crime. Here is the, the victim of that crime, uh, effectively, presenting that audience perspective, as well as the 36 women uh, that he is con- that he is. Uh, confessed to killing um an interesting point here is that she's wearing clothing that matches uh one of bundy's victims all the women in the movie are dressed as the quote-unquote final uh clothing choices of the women when they went missing okay and i feel like that's something nobody would know unless you looked it up or saw an interview and that was something i saw amber talking about why she chose to do that but Sam, you kind of lead us into the, the technical conversation. Let's yeah. talk about some of those things. Um, what what did you, outside of that scene, mm-hmm. uh, which we just talked about, sure. what, what else stood out to you technically? Yeah, I was, I was kind of appreciative of it being said at the beginning that it's inspired by true events. Not that, that we are getting a fake story, but the fact that this story has been covered to death and we're basing it on some tapes that Bill recorded and Bill's recollection. And it mentions that. And I think that's really interesting. And be like, we have to fill some of the gaps here because mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what Ted was doing yeah. throughout the entirety of this movie. We don't know what was happening when they turned off the recorder. We might have a little bit of transcript. We might have a little bit of what Bill remembers mm-hmm. from that conversation, but we don't have it word for word. We need to fill it in. Yes. And they were able to interview him, actually. They were they had plans to be more in person with him, but of course, COVID and their zero right. contact set uh, didn't allow them to have that happen. So they did a lot of their interviews over the phone or over Zoom okay. to learn more from him. Um, but you're, you make a good point there. A lot of that had to be inferred, and a lot right. of it is, is cinematic styling. Um, but I, I also like the fact that they, they chose to recognize that from the very beginning, was this is a story everyone knows, but here is our version of it. Right. And here is Bill's version of it, because Bill is the focus of the movie. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to put it all in context of this FBI analyst and why he's kind of the focus from the very beginning as opposed to Ted. 
Um, I even had to Google a couple of things. I was like, was uh, was Bill Hagemeyer in the prison still the, the time he was executed, at the very moment he was executed? He was. They'd actually been talking, having conversations into the final hours of his life. Uh, so that was a realistic part. It was nice to hear some of those things, to think that, okay, well, what of this is fake? What if it's not? Right. Um, but fake really isn't the word either. It's it's uh, imagined, I think, is a better word. Yeah, I think that would be a good mm-hmm. way to explain it, too. Yeah. yeah. What else stood out to you? Um, I really, this is just one tiny thing mm-hmm. that happened near the end of the movie, uh, right before Ted's confession, like confession to Bill. Okay. And that was, it was just a camera angle that we only saw for a couple of seconds, but it was in the gymnasium from the outside. Bill was looking to the outside through a very, very dirty, uh, and smudged window. Mm. And, uh, no, sorry. Uh, Ted was looking through uh, uh-huh. with a very dirty and smudged window out out into the real world, and Bill was looking through a like a freshly cleaned window. Hmm. And I was just I was like, is this consciousness? Is this just kind of like Ted's a shitty dude, and like <laughs> and and Bill is our Boy Scout like uh, person that we want? He's the FBI. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. he's the he's the good guy in this situation. But I thought it was a really interesting shot, and it made me take pause for a second. It wasn't even really, that. yeah. It wasn't even really mentioned too much. It it was never. It was only cut to once. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just an interesting shot. I would love the adverse of that to have the cloudiness be on Bill, yeah. and the clearness be on Ted. I think that would change the whole perspective of the movie, which is yeah. what yeah. she's trying to avoid. Um, so there is a reason she did it the way she did. If if this wasn't, of course, an intentional choice, which I'm sure it was, um, but I just think maybe maybe that's one of the ways that she's talking about how other directors have maybe messed up this story. Yeah. Perse- pers- uh, assuming that his mind is clear and he knows exactly what he's doing, as opposed to the FBI and the police all chasing him without without being able to be successful. Sure. So I just I think just into that similar that just one small little piece of that movie you can really tell where the director is coming from mm-hmm. with how she's portraying this. I think that's a very astute observation, Sam. Um, Kate, now, because you and I know a lot about this story, um, my more of my intelligence comes from the last two weeks of yeah. watching a ton of Bundy content, <laughs> which was has made for some uncomfortable sleepless nights. Mm-hmm. Um, I think No Man of God assumes the audience knows a lot more than most people would come to a movie watching. I agree. I think, I think you're 100% dead okay. on there. Because yeah. there, there was even a time when Kate and I kind of turned to each other and looked. When It's when he's talking about Rosa, his daughter. Yes. And uh, I don't know, Sam, I, I'd assumed you didn't know this because you weren't, you know, watching it, looking, didn't have the reaction that we did when he brings up his daughter. Uh, that was why the father part was so cringy because uh, we, you, if not knowing this, you might think mm-hmm. that, oh, he has a daughter from a previous relationship. Mm-hmm. Or even if you knew a little bit about him, you would know that his girlfriend had a daughter uh, that he was not the father of, but she was a single mom when they met. Um, but he really, it's it's he's representing a part of the story that is kills kind of a gross part of his story. How he not only manipulated this woman who had been a friend of his uh, to be this kind of savior of him in some way during his trial to testify on his behalf. Um, she claims that she did it for him, and she you know he never asked her to do it. She just kind of did it. Yeah. But then we learn that. He not only, uh, you know, brings her to the stand to testify against his character, he proposes to her Disgusting. in the middle of cross-examination, mm-hmm. yep. which uh, this movie does not depict, but other uh, Bundy movies do. And then they apparently are left alone one day in the cafeteria, and they're allowed to uh, consummate their marriage, mm-hmm. uh, and she ends up getting pregnant with his daughter, and which uh, is another part we don't see, because she's not even in the movie nope. that we're talking about in No Man of God. But it just seems like we have to, there's a lot of background information you have to know for some of these side comments to make sense. 
Now, the fact that you were still captivated by all of that, regardless of not knowing that background, puts that to shame a little bit. Yeah. Thinking that you yeah. can still be entertained and know what's going on without knowing that background. I think it's a still it's still a very interesting watch and just having two people talk to each other like mm-hmm. that. But I, I I agree with you. I if I didn't know anything because I've watched a few Bundy movies, I mm-hmm. know and I know enough about Bundy, but I don't know any of the specifics. This one goes into the specifics hard and fast. Yes, it it, it it runs through things. So there were stuff that was said, and this is why I said it was maybe a little bit forgettable mm-hmm. for me, is because it's covering some big topics that happened in the Bundy story that I just didn't recognize. So I let them fly by. Gotcha. I didn't have to stick to any of them. We didn't focus long on those. Yeah. Kate, seeing a lot of documentaries, you recognize a lot of the archival footage. That's yes. in the movie, which she kind of uses as not just like a bookend, but also to kind of break up the movie mm-hmm. and give us that context that maybe we're missing. Did you find the archival footage to be uh, useful in like adding some of that context of the people, you know, like cheering his his uh, execution? Or did you find it kind of cheap and lazy as a way to bring out this story without actually going into it? I would say it's cheap. Yeah. I thought yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, f- I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think. In a documentary that works, yeah. mm-hmm. but in a movie, it's like, oh, you have a low budget. You yeah. can't, you can't get people yeah. to be there, so we're just going to use archival footage. Mm-hmm. Just like it started with one of the Gumbles, I think. Yeah, the first, the first frame of the movie is Bryant Gumble. Yeah, is Bryant Gumble talking about Ted Bundy and mm-hmm. that he's been sentenced to death. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, it, it's expected, right? In, yeah. in, in a, in a true crime serial killer type movie, mm-hmm. archive footage is overused it's, yeah. it's almost become a cliche in itself funny we've talked about that before in <laughs> montages and things before on other episodes of this show uh but i want to talk about again uh it's another technical side the editing side of this movie in some of the camera angles and cinematography because they played very significant roles and i have to give the director credit here because i from what i've been able to gather she was kind of instrumental in some of these choices here the first is that in a lot of these conversations between just ted and bill the camera is constantly moving it's very rarely sitting and watching the two of them talk stationary. It's constantly moving. At one point, I remember kind of getting dizzy almost because there was one shot where the characters are in focus, but the camera's clearly moving around one of them. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts the other character and the camera's moving the opposite way, but still moving around them. And it felt like we were on this merry-go-round between the two of them. You know how you kind of, if you're on a merry-go-round with someone, you see them stationary, but everything else is moving around them. Mm-hmm. That's what it very much felt like. And then I kind of thought, well, hmm, maybe that's like the point because they're just going around and around with each other. They're both playing each other. Yeah, they're, in a they're way. both trying to get the upper hand and, yes. and we're, we're trying to figure out who's got it. Yeah, and they're both just going to stay on this. They're, they're not, neither one of them is going to let up. Mm-hmm. It's going to, someone's going to end the ride, but it's not going to be either one of them. So I'm like, I really kind of like that. I thought that was kind of a genius choice. Also, it kind of creates, especially in a stationary event like this, uh, it creates an illusion of immediacy as well. Granted, we have the clicking or the, the ticking time of, of cutting down his execution, but we're doing this over a four-year span. So there's nothing immediate about this. But what these each of these uh, one-on-one uh, conversations show is that tension that can build between these two, even though they don't know each other from the very first meeting. Which leads me to another point that I heard uh, Amber, he, uh, Amber Seeley, the director, talking about was these different meetings have different themes in each of them. So there's four meetings between the two of them throughout the movie, and they're quite long. Some of them are up to seven minutes long. Others are a little bit shorter than that. Uh, But the first meeting, I don't know if you all noticed this, but Bundy is obscured 
for most yeah. of the conversation. Mm-hmm. We don't see him when he walks into the room. He's in shadow. And then even when he we, he's in the room having the conversation, he's like through the armpit of yeah. Bill Hagmeyer, um, or he's like uh, underneath something. And you can just see him maybe just from under the table or something. Mm-hmm. We see him. That was all supposed to be like the, the first meeting, how they're both kind of feeling each other out. And Bunny is this larger than life persona, but Bill doesn't see him that way. So that was purposely intentional to show him from those angles. The middle two meetings, uh, we see a lot of overlaying of the two of them. I don't know if you remember this too, where Bill's talking and Bill's camera angle will, will kind of fade into Mm -hmm. Ted's or vice versa. This is trying to drive home that, that question of could Bill be Bundy with just a different choice or mistake kind of pushing that a little bit hard. But then the final meeting, they're very close up with each other. We see almost pores on both of their faces because now we're so familiar with one another that they have this mutual trust, whether it's, whether it's fake or not, there is a mutual trust there and a mutual respect that the two of them have for one another uh, that she's trying to convey through those close up angles. So again, to show you how the camera can convey a lot of that stuff without saying anything because the script didn't change. But the, the camera allowed us to do some of those things. And you have to be that creative in a chamber piece like this. And this is something I thought was interesting because I love movies that, that are like this. A chamber piece is a movie that has three primary uh, facets to it. It's a small cast of characters, so we got two people, check. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a short period of time. Granted, we're not doing this in an overnight scenario, but it's over four years of time, so it's, it's uh, a solid chunk of time, uh, but defined. And then, so check there. And then the third piece is a limited environment or single location. Most of this is right within the prison. Yep. So we would identify this as a chamber piece movie. Other uh, similar uh, examples include 12 Angry Men. All takes place in a jury deliberation room. Right. Ex Machina takes place in a house. In that one house, yep. yep. 10 Cloverfield Lane in the basement bunker inside John Goodman's basement. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great movie. I don't know if you've ever watched it. It's called Exam. And it's about a bunch of people that are trying to get this coveted job at some fancy firm. And they have to take this exam, but the paper's blank and they have to figure it out. And they kind of get like graphically violent with one another. Oh. Washington College, it's phenomenal. Interesting. But all takes place in one room, the entire movie. Okay. Um, My Dinner with Andre is another, this one that actually Amber Seely says she was inspired by. That was what my joke was going to be for my basically ah. before I thought of the the other one. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, Reservoir Dogs again takes place majorly in that that kind of like bunker place or not bunker, but like garage, that warehouse, garage, yeah, warehouse. And then another more common Gravity, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney in the middle of a space station Absolutely. somewhere in a tight yeah. little space. Um, but I just thought, thought that was interesting that she had to do those things to stay to make those scenes relevant. Let it work for you, Sam. Didn't work for Kate and I. Yeah. No, I think I think those types of movies and just you reading off some of those names are some of my favorite movies, and I think what makes them work so well and especially like Ex Machina and Reservoir Dogs is the dialogue is so, so key mm-hmm. when it comes to these movies because there are so few people there. And in and, and some of them, there's a little more action than this mm-hmm. movie. But like not all of them, Reservoir Dogs has quite a bit, but like Ex Machina doesn't have much action in it. But the, the dialogue is so damn good mm-hmm. that it works. And I think that's where at, at points... This movie struggles, okay. Except for when you're in the room with them together, okay. Yeah, the script has to be good for this type of to piece work. to work. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a question here about one uh, final technical thing that I thought was really, really positive. Again, in her attempt to not give Ted the credit, we don't see the perp walk, we don't see the shaving, or we do see the shaving of the we head, do. yeah. Um, but we don't see him like strapped in with the thing over his head. Um, tr- to give him that glory of being executed, which is what he wanted, the glory and the death. There's a lot of lore in the Ted Bundy thing that he purposely threw his own defense, purposely tried to to make him get the death penalty, all these different things, of course, who knows. Um, but the final thing is she chooses not to show him 
in the electric chair. She cho- she chooses not to not to even um, recognize it with words. She does it through the cheering of people outside, which I thought was an interesting tool to use. It was the final uh, shots of the film where we hear uh, Bill is on the phone with his son who won't shut up, as most <laughs> kids are, and uh, he's in the in the jail and he hears the people cheering out outside, symbolizing that Bundy has been executed, the end of his assignment, really. So I just thought that was an, a creative way of doing that at the end. Yeah, I think I think so. That's a really interesting way to do it. I mm-hmm. was kind of impressed because, like, you'd think, like, this is the climax. This is what mm-hmm. we're what we're building to the entire movie, and we're not going to show it. No, that takes guts. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a bait and switch. Yeah, very bait and switch. Okay, anything technically that stood out to you? The only thing I noticed was that there was a yellow hue to everything. Hmm. And it reminded me of the CSI franchise. <laughs> Good point. Because CSI New York has a blue tint to it. Vegas has a green tint. Green, t- yeah. And then Miami has a yellow tint. And we were in Florida. Sunshine yeah! State. Yeah! <laughs> I, I really hope that Amber Healy, or Amber Seeley is taking her creative direction from CSI Miami. I hope so too. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. in the first scene when we're getting to the jail it shows florida correctional facility or whatever it was called and then we go into the warden's office and it's there's yellow papers on the wall i think both of them or one of them is wearing a yellow shirt yes there's the sun shining in which makes the room yellow and i just i thought it was funny it is funny to compare those two two (laughs) things together just the tone of each one is is very very different well yeah but like it's it's funny with directors that are like it's hot and muggy in Florida. How are we going to depict it? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's yellow. Yeah. Well, it's kind of what we did with uh, um, the Girl Scout movie. Oh, yeah. Troop Zero. Troop Zero. That was, I mean, it was supposed to be Georgia in the hot 1960s. It was, it all had this yellow tint to yeah. it. Mm-hmm. But I think, see, this one I struggled with because I wrote this down, not the hue, but I wrote down his shirt color, the same thing you mentioned, okay. Kate. Yeah. Because to me, I think when I see yellow, I think back to Jaws. And in the, the very infamous scene in Jaws where the shark first attacks, the little boy's raft is yellow, the dog uh, owner's shirt is yellow. All the innocence of the of that scene is yellow. Oh, okay. The, the hat that uh, the little boy's mom wears is yellow. Like Spielberg used that to identify innocence. So I was like, there's no way that she'd be recalling that thing to right. dress him then in a yellow shirt. And I look back at the interviews, he was wearing that shirt. That's why okay. I think she chose the, the shirt color. Um, but again, I think that the, the whole hue of innocence over this is what kind of threw me. It makes a weird thing, but I also thought about lighting as well. She tried to go with warm lighting. Like we're kind of sitting mm-hmm. in a warm lit room, right. creates a more of a dated aspect to it as well. Um, where and she was even someone talked about this. She was like the production design. People wanted to put like they wanted to make the the jailhouse or the the interrogation room seem more interesting. So they wanted to do like sconces on the wall or like something to make it look a little bit more dated. And she's like. It's a jail cell. We're yeah, not going to yeah. put con, you know, sconces on no. anything. <laughs> so I think a lot of that was was a dating factor as well, which I thought was a smart move on her part. Yeah, that's what I wondered if mm-hmm. back in the 80s, if the popular color was yellow. Like yeah, that's the one they went and, with. Yeah. I, I, I could see that being the case, it's too. It's just how the time was. I don't yeah, know. Sure. Sunshine State. <laughs> Killing people since 1900. Uh, Sam. Yes. You like the movie, but I think it's time for you to slam it, perhaps. Sure is. It's time for some Sam Slams. 
Oh, you didn't do it. She backed out. She chickened out. chickened out. That's okay. That's okay. No, I, I have a couple here that just were a little frustrating with yeah. me. And it had to do with really the beginning of this movie. Okay. And it was the... Be- I, I thought that this movie was going to be a train wreck before we got into the first interrogation, so to speak. Yeah. And one of the big things uh, about that was the constant reiteration of that he hates feds. And it, it starts when they're in the FBI headquarters and they're trying to figure out who's going to talk to Bundy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and they're, uh, one of his, I think, uh, co-workers is like, he hates feds. He's not going to talk to you. Yeah. He hates feds. And then we get to the warden down in Florida once Elijah Wood gets there. He hates the feds. Yeah. And then Ted says in the first interrogation that he hates the feds. And I was like, we get it. He doesn't <laughs> like talking to the FBI. We don't need to keep saying that. And to go right into the next thing here, it, he is constantly being told that Ted's not going to talk to him. It's not going to work. He's not going to break him. If we thought for one second that Ted was not going to talk to Bill, <laughs> this movie wouldn't exist. We That's the whole basis of this movie yeah. is that they're having a conversation with each other. And like I, I was just so annoyed that it constantly came up. And that goes with like none of the people volunteering to talk with him because they're like, oh, he's not going to talk to you. I'm like, he is one of the most famous serial killers even at that time. Ever. Mm-hmm. And none of those feds want to talk to this guy? Well, I think they had already tried to. All of them? Uh, not all no, of them. Not okay. the Even Stevens dad in the back of the room. <laughs> I did notice that was the dad from Even <laughs> Shout Stevens. out to Tom Virtue. Glad that you are there, buddy. Getting one line in this B-rated movie. <laughs> but it was so frustrating. I'm like, even if you don't get anything out of it, mm-hmm. you still can You can put that on your resume. <laughs> Is that you talked to Ted Bunny and tried to profile him, even if you don't get anything. You you would think that people would be chomping at the bit to get this opportunity. But think of, he had talked about BTK and Bedeker already on the list, so alphabetically, it was third best. I mean, (laughs) who could you have talked to? Uh, I I thought it was ambitious for, for the screen team, the screenwriting team, to take this, what seems to be kind of the least interesting part of the whole Bundy saga, and turn it into an interesting movie. They kind of picked a very you know high degree difficulty dive here to try to pull this off and i think it worked in some ways but having watched the other ones with the the more engaging content it's just so much easier to get attracted to as opposed to two people in a room and, and where we know the setup we get the setup okay he doesn't like you he's not going to talk oh you walk in he immediately talks to you like as soon as you take the biggest conflict in the room off off the table quite literally what's left for us to be mm-hmm. surprised by and that's kind of where i was i was like okay so what's going to happen next I knew the I knew the story enough. I didn't know enough about the Dobson interview, which I enjoyed learning more about that. Right, yeah, that was really cool to see, especially how they both used each other. But that that felt like the climax to me. And then the rest of the movie felt like a letdown. Was we were building up to that, and then oh wait, there's another 25 minutes left of what? You know, mm-hmm. like he, 25 minutes What's to represent the final 25 minutes of his life. Like what are we doing here? But I, I agree with you on your slams. Thank you. It was it was kind of. Cheap screenwriting. They put a lot of effort into the scenes themselves, but not the setup for it. Yeah, you need you need the build up, and that's kind of what yeah. almost killed it for me. Yeah. Well, let's let's enter some questions, comments, and concerns that we might have after watching No Man of God by Amber Seely Kate. Anything that uh, is on your mind, you want to ponder, you want to throw out there for us to discuss? Yes. He specifically asked for spearmint gum, mm. and when Bill gave it to him. 
it was a hassle to get it in the jail and they had to approve the wrapper. Yeah, contraband. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> what was the importance of this gum? When he started chewing it, it seemed like he had like this sexual reaction. Hmm. I I don't know. It did make me very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> also, not just because of that portion of it, but also because spearmint gum is my favorite flavored gum. Oh, and I was like, yeah. what does that say? Can't drink or can't eat it anymore. <laughs> what does that say about no. me? But like, I, I don't know. It, it seemed like it was his last thing of the outside world you know yeah it was like i'm gonna save this for later and he like put it on the the files for a little bit before putting it back in his mouth and i i don't know if that's kind of the approach that they were taking with it or if it did have maybe like maybe they found it on yeah. like one at one of the scenes of the crime i don't know it made me wonder if that was like maybe that was in his rape kit or his Ooh, assault yeah. kit was his signature this is, this is what he chews when he's out looking for someone to stalk and assault i'm not familiar with that being a a running gag for him or a part of his signature i'm not either but i think you were kind of closer at least how i would interpret that was sam if it wasn't your kind of like last ditch effort of the outside world thing was maybe one of his victims was chewing it and it was a way to relive that yeah in a way just Mm. the way he reacted to chewing it just seemed seemed creepy suspicious yeah should ask luke kirby yeah, he's a weird know. interview, by the way. Really, don't watch. He's just creepy. Yeah, <laughs> he's one of those guys that thinks acting is the most noble profession in the world. And it's like, get over yourself, buddy. Ah. You don't do much for the for society. <laughs> Love you, but sorry, you run marvelous, Mrs. Maisel. That's it. That's it. <laughs> uh, I had a question. I noticed this also in some of the documentaries and other films you watched uh, about Bundy. Why was the electric chair in plain view through an exterior window? This felt very weird to me. Yeah. Like they showed in this movie, they showed like people pulling the drapes over. You could see the electric chair through the window. Yeah. And like they, they finally gave the scenario that, you know, when the guy walks out and he puts his thumbs up, that's how they all knew that he was dead and they cheered. But you could see them like preparing for mm-hmm. the execution and the talk about in some documentaries how they had turned these generators on to get the electric chair boosted up and all this stuff. All these outside. It was almost like the building was built for entertainment value of the electrocution. It, I will say it seems like the most Florida thing that's ever Florida. <laughs> yeah. It seems like that's exactly what they were doing. I mean, short of building a moat around it and filling with gators and just dropping people in that, yeah. this felt very just kind of like a one last ditch finger in the eye to the person getting killed. Well, and it also seems like a way to glorify it a little bit. True. Yeah. And it, it's 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 wild to me that like I understand uh, that Ted is a horrible guy, but the amount of people cheering on a death is is always is always unsettling to me, mm-hmm. no matter who it is. And I I just I th- I think I think it maybe maybe it was trying to prove something with the cheering or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's still it's still unsettling to me, like deep down. There was this great comment that I can't remember where I heard it, but it was talking about the crowd that was outside cheering his his execution most of them being young men ages Mm -hmm. like 19 or 20 who were not even born when he committed his first crimes and who were likely people that would commit similar crimes unchecked because they thought they had the power to do it and very few of them are women in the in uh outside you know kind of being excited about the fact that this tormentor of women was gone but it was men trying to just there for like the the tailgating aspect of it all just yeah. so weird. There were people selling T-shirts saying "Burn Bundy, Burn," oh. and selling little pins and mm-hmm. like making money off this guy's death. And 
they there was it was like a tailgate yeah people were holding signs and drinking and partying do you think he would have liked that yes okay i th- see that's what i think that is so hurtful about it all is he l- probably relished in it Exactly. He didn't have a lot of, I mean, he, he talks, I think, one point in this movie, he says, I don't get to see what's going on out there. Tell me what's what's happening. But he knew that people were there because you could hear it. And I don't think that's an exaggeration either. I think you could hear the people outside from inside yeah. the prison. Um, another question I have is just about true crime in general. So this is more of an opinion question, Kate. Um, <laughs> because you watch a lot of it, and I'm not saying that this is going to be you, but does true crime content provide instructional manuals for how to get away with murder? We got a whole show with Viola Davis. It's titled with her mom. Titled How to Get Away with Murder. <laughs> I, it, this kind of brings back to Sam's uh, point of glorification of uh, of capital punishment. Uh, as as a, as controversial as it is in this country, does true crime content like this really just provide the next person the skills? They, I mean, how many times have you watched an episode of Law and View and been like, oh yeah, I could totally do that and not make that mistake. Or I would know to wear gloves if I'm going to do something because I watched that show. Does it does it make it that simple for people? I think people think it's that simple. Okay. Like I can watch SVU and be like, oh, I would never make that mistake of yeah. leaving my fingerprint on whatever. <laughs> That's just not true. Yeah. We're not, most people aren't smart enough to yeah. get away with something like this. It takes a very intelligent and crazy i don't know sociopathic Sociopathic yeah back to our earlier conversation i shouldn't have said crazy sociopathic person to be able to do this type of thing Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think if if you're looking at something like a forensic files or something like that to try to get away with something it's it's not gonna work like it's I, i i don't think i don't think they provide enough information I know there are things like that that are pretty detailed and mm-hmm. they're like, "Ooh, I can miss this. I like I can avoid this part of it, but you're going to miss like 50 other things. Yeah. And I, I think that's what a lot of people it takes a, a, a certain kind of arrogance mm-hmm. to think that you're going to be able to get away with it better than anybody on any of these TV shows. Yeah. I think the danger more comes from our response as jury to these type of cases. Like the true crime element is not just the crime; it's the like the 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 punishment for it. Mm-hmm. And did this person get off? Did they did, were they able to use some sort of legal tactic to to get away with it? Because um, it's not just the not being arrested for it, but not being tried and convicted for it. And I think that's where I think we tend to uh, minimize what is seen on screen. They don't give us all the details. Even they talk about uh, in some of the documentaries about Ted is we purposely didn't give away the graphic details of his murders mm-hmm. because we didn't want people to to know that kind of stuff. We were sensitive to that inf- mm-hmm. to that content. A jury saw all that. Yeah. So to us, it's like okay, they convicted him on a partial bite mark from some fledgling science that said that was the same teeth based on visual observation. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot more that goes into that. And, and more than what we see, which is why I think that the trial aspect is so much more engrossing. And that's why I thought it was so interesting that she chose, Amber Seeley and the, the screenwriting team chose to take this story way after that. Not even discussing his appeals. Like they didn't even dive into his appeals that he did while he was in prison. They were focused solely on this, this conversation between him and Bill to get yeah. this different side of the killer. When really that legal battle is so interesting, especially his trial, which was so innovative mm-hmm. uh, for just the American people to witness for the first time. And I just thought that was a really bold, again, bold choice for them. My core question, though, uh, and this kind of goes back uh, to the story as a whole and why we're fascinated with Ted Muddy content. Is it possible to empathize with evil? 
it, it seems like a weird thing to think about. Uh, even sympathizing, like sympathy for a human is a normal reaction. So like when you see him on his, on death row and like, I think when he was shaving his head, I was like, oh, can I feel bad for him? Like, you know, you're, you're, it's a human reaction to feel mm-hmm. sympathy for someone in their final minutes of dying, whether they're a notorious serial killer or whether like, you know, they're going to die of cancer or something like you still feel bad in a way. And it makes me think about this whole concept of rubbernecking, uh, you know, driving along an accident on the highway and you have to look at it. Is your reaction to look at it because, ooh, I want to see that gory person splayed across the highway? Or is it because you you feel bad for a person in that time of, of desperation, in that, that right. worst moment of their life? And Bendy even says it uh, a little bit, which kind of makes me think that he is in a camp of there are people that think that seeing violence and graphic violence is is the goal of things where he says people just want to be titillated absolutely they want to have that so are we inherently as a society drawn to violence for the sake of violence or are we drawn to it because we're sympathetic to the person going through it regardless of whether they're good or bad yeah i i think so i think i've already admitted that i i was a little uncomfortable with with ted bundy being killed and so many people being excited about it mm-hmm. i think we're gonna see it on both ends it's not necessarily gonna be entirely sympathetic but it's also not going to people want to see the gore yeah we talk about horror movies all the time we want to see the gore the fact of the matter is like even stuff like saw or uh like the hostile franchise people want to see that shit it's not for me mm-hmm. but there are people out there that want to watch like the goriest stuff that you can possibly see and it's just I think it's part of human nature and it's it's not necessarily when you're driving by an accident that you want to see all of the gore but like if it's there do you want to be the person who missed it when you were driving by mm-hmm. yeah. do you want to be able to like it might scar you for a long time yeah. but you're like I, I I just can't help it you're I, drawn I, to I it. need to take a look yeah Kate did you ever feel sympathetic for Ted Bundy at any point in your no recognition of him no, no. okay and it was that it, like you you're quick to that is did you ever think that there was a chance that he was innocent of these crimes as he said he was or did you ever feel like he was wrongfully pursued in any way no i think okay. he was guilty of everything um and it's hard to feel sympathy for somebody who brutally assaults and murders 26 he admitted to 26 mm-hmm. but could be hundreds of women out there that we don't know about it, I can't feel sympathy for that. It, it's interesting that this movie brings up the whole capital punishment argument as well, because right. that's still really uh, a, a common uh, controversial issue today, even 20 years after he was put to death. Yeah. Um, in some states a lot, some states don't. Even his defense lawyer, when she was interviewed later, the woman that's depicted in this, she said, I was not trying to fight for the fact that he was innocent of these crimes. I just didn't believe he should be put to death regardless of how he had done it to other people. So some people have that strong conviction. And I think yeah. that that's, uh, I, I appreciate that, that they showed both sides of that argument yeah. that people who were supporting him, his defense team, they didn't like him. They didn't want to help him, but they felt obligated or dutied in their role as a lawyer, their role as a defense litigator, anyone to just try to save what that represented to them, uh, which I just thought was interesting. So maybe the same motivation that Bill had to take the case. Sure. Kate, any other questions from the from the movie that you sparked? Uh, not from the movie, but I do have a question for both of you. Sure. Do either of you have any connection to true crime? Any story? Anything? More than like watching stuff about it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, I got really into making a murderer in college. Oh, did you really? <laughs> like, 
like conspiracy groups and like Whoa. coming up with things with people. Yeah, real deep into it. Real deep into it. Oh, Again, gosh. I thought I was ju- the jury. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have one. Uh, it was my senior year of college, uh, and uh, I think it was January. It was right before my birthday, so January twenty first, two thousand fourteen. Uh, there was a shooting on on campus uh, of Purdue University. And it happened in the middle of the day. Uh, I was in class uh, in a building a few a few buildings over. And um, someone had walked into a, a classroom uh, and shot down the TA in the middle of him teaching. Hmm. Um, and it, his name was Andrew Andrew Bolt was the the, the victim of this crime. Uh, committed by uh, Cody Cousins, and it was it was terrifying because we didn't know the extent while we were in class. Yeah, we were, we got a text that uh, everything was in lockdown mm-hmm. and that there was an active shooter on campus. And uh, I was in history of aviation was the class I was <laughs> taking because I needed some credits, and it was my senior year. <laughs> um, but our teacher didn't take it seriously. Uh, mm. who didn't lock the doors, continued to teach during the entirety of the lockdown. Nobody was paying attention for obvious reasons. Yeah. People were texting out and letting people know that they were safe and we were trying to get updates as quickly as possible. We were getting pictures and uh, one picture was sent out of someone with an assault rifle oh my God. Um, walking walking through campus. It turns out that that was actually a picture of one of the SWAT members. Mm-hmm. Um like walking through campus but it was sent out so quickly because mm-hmm. it's all about getting that information yeah. out as quickly as possible so people thought that it was an active shooter it was it was really just one person this cody cousins who walked in and and shot down this this person and turned himself in right afterwards we didn't know if there were multiple shooters or anything mm-hmm. like that um but like in the in the trial itself he the reason he gave as to why he did this was basically because he could. And it was one of the, it's one of the most upsetting. It like gives me chills just to think about it. Like no animus to this person. No, it, it, like love affair. I, or... it, it wasn't anything like that. And oh. it, it, it's, it just, uh, from one, some of the information that I saw, it was a crime of jealousy. So maybe he knew him in passing, mm-hmm. but there was no significant relationship between these two people. Oh. Uh, and, and it actually ended up turning out, uh, that while in prison, uh, Cody Cousins killed himself. Mm. Wow. Um, I think before his sentencing, I believe okay. that was the case. But that's the basically the closest I've ever been mm-hmm. to anything like that. And it was a terrifying situation. Yeah. And and it's it's nowhere near what some of these school shootings uh, have been, is especially in recent years. Mm-hmm. But like it 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 can happen anywhere, and it's so upsetting. And I feel for every one of these students that have been in 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 these kind of situations um mine i was i was far safer than most um but knowing that there were people filled in that classroom i think it was a chemistry class and and to to have to witness something like that Mm -hmm. not knowing what was going to happen um it's terrifying oh thanks for that real upper sam sorry yikes mine's not as as direct as sam's i wasn't involved in the actual time of of the scenario but uh, my parents have a boat in Muskegon, and uh, we had some people that are uh, just one row over from us. Of course, in a marina like that, everyone knows everybody. Mm-hmm. My dad's a loudmouth. He knows everybody that's there <laughs> and everything about their boat, and he can give you a full rundown. But there was a nice couple that had a few kids. They were really pleasured to be around. 
And one day, the the husband had taken out some coworkers on a fur boat ride, and they decided to go swimming uh, in this small little area of Muskegon Lake. Um, they all went swimming, and one of them didn't come back up. So uh, they uh, all got back onto the boat. This guy wasn't there. No one saw him, you know, go away. They like it was no struggle for like he couldn't swim or anything like that. Just he disappeared. So police had to come in, you know. Took a day to find the body. Uh, all sorts of ideas of what might have happened to why he drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, following that, of course, he was the only one of that group who had any any difficulties. He was also the only uh, Muslim member of the group. So the Nation of Islam came in to try to file a wrongful death suit, saying mm-hmm. that these other white guys had all gone in and killed this guy um, and drowned him, or like t- took him out on the boat ride to murder him. Um, and Louis Farrakhan got into it. So like there was, it was a national story of the nation of Islam kind of fighting Muskegon County, trying to say that they had done this on purpose and the police had covered it up and all this stuff to my best recollection is, uh, the, uh, nothing ever came of that. The suit never was, no one ever paid out or anything. It was just determined to be, uh, an accident possibly, you know, hit his head on something underwater or who knows what could have happened. It's not a very clean lake. Um, but it, you know, the the family. I haven't seen them since. I mean, they sold their boat. I mean, how do you come back from that? I mean, it's not like something you can just like, oh, we'll see you next weekend. You know, right. kind of a deal. Uh, but super sad. Yeah. Uh, and then to have the 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 legal part of it afterward mm-hmm. uh, was just really unfortunate. Um, but who, I mean, again, who knows? I yeah. mean, they've they built enough suspicion, and it. it's one of those one of the best things about true crime is when you don't really know what happened. Uh, it's kind of like one of even as great as a case as OJ is, we'll still never know. You know, yeah. it, like you, you, you think you get the, the the defining moment when the case says it a certain way, but you never mm-hmm. know. Same thing with Ted. We'll never know how many victims he really had. Exactly. Yeah. What Kate, about you, Kate? You got anything? I do. Uh, so in January of 2013, I was in college at this time. I mm-hmm. was up at CMU. Um, in January of 2013, a 22-year-old man named Javante Higgins who actually lived in the neighborhood we all grew up in. Um, He broke into an elderly couple's home in the neighborhood with the intention of robbing them. And he had done this before. Not to this couple, but, you know. um, At B&E'd before. Yes. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, during this robbery, he shot the 80-year-old wife, Vivian Bowman, and the husband, 81-year-old David Bowman, at point-blank range. After the murders, he stole their car and their wedding rings and went on the run. Um, He was later arrested in Chicago, and I couldn't find a ton of information about this case, which is kind of surprising, Um, or how he was caught, what he was doing in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that December 10th of 2013, um, just a couple weeks before this murder, he stole a pickup truck, and in a high-speed... It was either a chase or he was just cruising along. Yeah. Crashed into the tree directly in front of my parents' house. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was going so fast that the the truck wrapped around the tree and the truck ended up in like I think three separate parts. <laughs> so I was away from away at school at this time and I get a text from my dad in the morning with a blurry picture. <laughs> It was in the middle of the night, Uh so a blurry, dark picture with little arrows drawn to where, like, 
this is the front of the truck this is the back of the truck and you could see like there were police and ambulances and fire trucks and them trying to extract him from the vehicle because he was pinned in Mm -hmm. um and he was left with um he was in the hospital with really serious injuries um and left with a really bad limp and that limp was one of the reasons why he was caught and convicted yeah someone had saw had seen him pouring kerosene on the car and yep. he had a limp the figure had a limp yeah okay wow that's crazy i saw that tree the other day yeah. it, it's i think it's di- starting to die now but it's still oh. like significantly scarred from yeah. that accident as is the the neighborhood oh yeah where we all grew up mm-hmm. from having yeah. this sweet little old couple murdered while they were sleeping yeah uh yeah they i remember that's just... like maybe 15 houses away from your house sam and 15 away from my parents house exactly yeah yeah creepy yeah well, not that we've scared ourselves into submission here. Let's talk about No Man of God again. Uh, some critical receptions uh, for this movie. Sam, let's get some numbers in here. Yeah, we have an IMDb audience score of 6.4 out of 10. That's with 4,700 ratings. So not too many. On the smaller have side. Seen that one. Mm-hmm. A meta score of a 67. Rotten Tomatoes critic score of a 79%. And an audience score of a 66%. And it's the highest of all Bundy content. Yes. Uh, this is the most highly regarded movie of any Bundy movie. That's surprising to me. Yeah. Same. <laughs> um, I think, does it, I don't think it counts like uh, documentaries and stuff too, does it? It doesn't count like TV series. Okay. I don't okay. think, unless they're recent and have Rotten Tomatoes scores. That so makes, like Ted Bundy sense. tapes has a Rotten Tomatoes score, but like the original Ted Bundy movie from CBS does not. Sure. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get our critical consensus. Mm-hmm. No Man of God may not offer much in terms of original take on this oft told story, but excellent performances make it a, uh, sorry, but excellent performances make it tough to turn away. I don't know, Kate. I <laughs> I don't think the performances were that excellent. No. I easily turned away a couple of times. <laughs> Again, I was bored. <laughs> I think the performances were really good. I think okay. I think our main two characters were very good. Anything really outside of that, I know we didn't get them very much. Mm-hmm. I think Dobson was okay, but like I didn't think anybody Dobson can get fucked. Can I just say that? Yeah, I yeah, I, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. But I think um like anybody in the FBI in that first scene were, was shit. It was, they were it was so childish. Bad. It was amateur hour. It was so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was not a fan uh, of, of how this took the story. I just didn't think there was much there to tell. I thought it was interesting. Would have been a nice component to another movie. You know, it would have been yeah. a nice to have these intimate scenes in addition to more story about him. Yes. But we're talking in terms of under the radarness of, of this movie in particular, Ted Bunny's been all over the place in the last few years. I don't know why. We're still obsessed with him. Apparently, we haven't had a a good serial killer in a while to get obsessed with in this way. But as overdone as Ted Bundy is and has been, I don't think this has still received the right attention it needs. It needs an American crime story. It it needs the impeachment. It needs the OJ. It needs that style. Can I, I, I? This is something that I've felt for a while now. I don't think actors should be portraying serial killers interesting take. I, I don't think we should do anything outside of documentaries about serial killers i think we can create movies that include uh homages of some kind like silence of the lambs your yeah. favorite movie yeah includes a ted bundy bit yeah where he has a broken hand and tries to get somebody to help them move furniture 
into a vehicle to abduct them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think we need Zach Efron playing Ted Bundy or the multitude of people we're going to name in just a second. Mm-hmm. I think we should be able to move past this. The reason I think that is because do you know how much Ted Bundy would fucking love mm-hmm. that he has yeah. several motion pictures that star famous people portraying him? Well, when we're talking about famous people, that's subjective. Well, to an extent, but you know what I mean. They're yeah. all they're all celebrities in Hollywood. Yes, that are playing them to varying degrees of yes. celebrity, of course. But I I think giving them that kind of platform is really frustrating. Yeah. Outside of just the academic platform, like Bill is trying to seek in this movie. Okay, I I would much prefer that. I would much prefer watching a documentary about it rather than these types of movies. I agree. Okay. I think this type of movie glorifies like any any movie about a serial killer where they're portrayed in it is it's just glorifying them. Yeah. Which, that, that's a really good point to make because she specifically set out Amber Seeley did to say my movie is different from all these other ones because I don't glorify him. But I like your take as saying any movie with him as a character in it in effect glorifies him. Because you're re- con- you're continuing that narrative regardless of whether yeah. he's portrayed in a good light or not. Mm-hmm. Like a movie about Osama bin Laden is still going to be about Osama bin Laden mm-hmm. regardless of who's playing them or what. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's an interesting take. I personally don't know what impact this still has, and I I, I, I this because I I'm still new to it, and I, there's so much true crime content out there. Does it make sense to continue to profile the same person? Or is there more wealth to spread across the board? Oh, there are plenty of people uh, to to make movies about, yeah. and I'm yeah. sure I'm sure we'll get one about the Golden State Killer soon enough. Yeah. Um, but I don't think somebody should portray him. Mm-hmm. I think we get we have documentaries, um, and I think that's that's something that we can take away from. And those documentaries are usually, especially by true crime people, mm-hmm. such I, I I don't want to speak for you, but are more <laughs> highly regarded. Would yeah. you would you, you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's so it's difficult for me to separate how amazing the story is. And when I say that I don't mean to to downplay anything or to glorify him as a killer by any means. This story is fascinating. From his first crimes to going undetected for so long to nearly being turned in to escaping twice to being his own defense attorney to proposing to his girlfriend on the stand, all of this stuff is just crazy. It writes itself. Like, they're really, you don't need a narrative version of it. Exactly. Which I think lends to your documentary perspective. Sure. I just, if we're going to do it, we need to stop doing it with these like C level actors and movie companies because this is what I don't like. You know, this straight to DVD style of movie that it just exists to create something that has Ted Bunny's name on it doesn't make any sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, and I think it's the, the thought process behind it is like true crime sells. Yes. What's, what's popular yeah. right now? Yes. True crime. And we haven't had like, a significant true crime film since like Zodiac, like that, like a list mm-hmm. style movie. And, and I, I could be completely wrong. And listeners, if there is another one that's way better than this, let us know on Twitter or something. But I, I don't think there's many, I don't know why uh, production companies aren't throwing money at it. Like I, I, I'm not going to win this argument and that, Mm-hmm. thinking that people shouldn't play these serial killers because it does make money. So well, why what, not throw A-list actors at it? What about if they're adjacent, the way that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did it, where Charles Manson had like a cameo as an actor, and it was a revisionist style of history? 
I don't know. I, I, okay. I with that kind of stuff with the revision is that's solely Tarantino. I don't think any okay. other other people can really get away with that because Manson is the most uh, the most represented serial killer on movies or crime or any or For movie, sure. any kind of thing like that. I think some of the numbers that he's in the high eighties and uh, Ted Bundy is second in the fifty range. Mm-hmm. Totally overdone though. Like yeah. I I think it's it's not necessary. We have books about them. We have mm-hmm. documentaries about them. We probably have some TV shows about them too. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do we need major motion pictures about them too? Well, I, I bring this up because I know that Leo is going to be playing uh, Holmes. Is it JJ Holmes or JR Holmes or HH H- Holmes? HH Holmes, yep. uh, this infamous serial killer that was during the world the World's Fair in Chicago in the late 1890s. Scorsese adapts The Devil in the White City. Yeah. And so, he had a murder house that. Yeah. And he it, it sounds fascinating. And like that, like it even hurts myself. I'm yeah. going to watch that movie. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like it'll be really, really interesting. But like I could read a book about it. I could watch mm-hmm. a documentary, but I'll probably watch Leo. Yeah, what are we learning from this? I think is, right. is the question. And you're just I'm really gravitating to your point here that just putting them on screen and having someone portray them has us entertaining or has us entertained to watch it. Not in yeah. an academic pursuit, the way that Bill always intended this to be. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you hundred percent. But we've we've Hollywood has fucked up many a times on this story, uh, and there are a number that we just wanted to bring up in case you had recognized the story, or maybe you wondered where you saw this before. Some of the big ones: the uh, the deliberate stranger was a made-for-TV movie that starred Mark Harmon as Ted Bundy, who's also a creep. Boo! All fuck th- Mark Harmon. <laughs> Is he bad? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know anything about him. Has he been me too or something? Yes. yes. Oh, I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, fuck Mark Harmon. Um, but this actually, the thing about, the interesting one about this, this came out while he was still on death row in 1986. Oh, that's, that gave me chills. <laughs> that's but like, gross. But that's how captivating, I mean, we set this up as a society to put this this trial as the first one to be televised. People didn't know what serial killers were before Ted Bundy. Yeah. He put that name on the map. Ted Bundy could have watched that movie. Ugh. That's creepy to think about. Yeah. Some other options include 2002's Ted Bundy, just the name of it. The Stranger Beside Me from 2003 was an adaptation of the book that's on uh, Kate's desktop. Oh, I should have uh, just watched that. Should have just watched the movie. <laughs> uh, the Riverman, 2004. And the ones that are probably most recent uh, that were kind of coincided with the, with the uh, 20th anniversary, excuse me, the 30th anniversary of his execution were Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile from 2019. That's the one that starred Zac Efron, directed by Joe Berlinger. And then at the same time, Netflix put out Joe Berlinger's documentary series called Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes, which those were kind of companion pieces that came out very, I think, within a week of each other. So this guy's really into Ted Bundy. And then... Um, for Amazon Prime members, there's something for you too. Ted Bundy falling for a killer, which is about uh, the girlfriends uh, and the women that that uh, were attracted to him. That's on Amazon Prime. By the way, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile is more about the story of the girlfriend uh, of uh, Liz Kendall kind than of. it is anything. I mean, his whole story is from the very beginning, but she yeah. was with him from the very beginning, so yeah. that's why she's kind of the focus. That's played by Lily Collins, by the way. And then the funny thing about this is the week before No Man of God came out. Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman, came out starring none other than Chad Michael Murray as the famous killer. That sounds horrible. <laughs> By the way, it, uh, from what I heard, it was comically bad. Yeah, it's but also Chad very Michael Murray. <laughs> <laughs> but also very graphically violent, so a very different approach mm-hmm. was to take that side of things, which would be more titillating to people, but again, straight to DVD, because no one wants to watch that shit. 
So the, the question here is, was this movie necessary in the first place? Because interest begets more interest. The more we produce Ted Bunny content, the more people are going to want Ted Bunny content. I think because he's such a mysterious figure, we're trying to demystify. Uh, but while we demystify, we breed more myth about him. We end up creating more and more conspiracy as we get more and more opportunities to mm-hmm. talk about him. The, the, it's just a weird conversation to have here because I actually found Bill uh, Hagmeyer is actually featured in the Ted Bundy tapes documentary, the four part series on Netflix. Yep. I found him talking about things more engaging than watching this version of this, this narrative version of it. I agree. Um, that's more compelling to me. So again, Sam, when you talk about the audience, what's more beneficial to us? Sure. Yeah. A documentary would be more on the, on the moral side of things or the ethical side of things as opposed to this. I still love all the background knowledge of all this because there became a war of words between Amber Seeley and Joe Berlinger, the aforementioned director of, of Zac Efron version and the, the documentary version, because she came out very early in the press for this movie and said, well, my movie's not like those other Ted Bundy films. I don't choose to glorify uh, Ted Bundy in any way and talking about how her film is better than all these other ones. And Joe Berlinger was like, fuck that and sent her an email <laughs> saying don't talk bad about other projects to make yours look better yeah and basically said i've spent my life researching ted bundy i'm qualified to be making the content that i made you know it doesn't help you to put my work down even though she never specifically attacked his but i mean it was two years after his, right. so it's in his was Director the most popular fight. so she pulled the whole thing of publishing that email that he sent her to Variety magazine so everyone could see how much of a dick Joe Berlinger was so she could play the victim. I'm not really liking her at this point because I think it's a real <laughs> dick move to do that kind of thing. Sure, he didn't need to mansplain Ted Bunny to her, but also you put out and saying that every work that had been done by everyone prior to you is bad and because you're the female director, you can do it. By the way, she's not the first female director to cover Ted Bundy, so I don't think she was specifically oriented to do something different than anyone else. I just love that there's all this drama going on behind the scenes. That's hilarious. Because this is just, it's silly. Stop making movies about him. Try making something original. Yeah, do something new. But I don't know. Under the radarness of this movie, no one watched it anyway. Because there's too much Ted Bundy content. That's so true. And if you're going to do it, Zac Efron's the person to do it. You think so? I mean, if you're going to get you know a good-looking person to be in your movie, Luke Kirby's not going to bring in a whole crowd of women. That is true. It's true. I thought... I thought uh, Zac Efron was too good looking in the in the role. Like, he was. Ted Bundy was, I've, and, and this is just my opinion, attractive as a normal person. <laughs> Zac Efron doesn't feel like a normal person, even in this movie uh, portraying him. He feels like a Hollywood actor playing a character. Like, And, and I yeah. know that's what it is, but that's what it feels like. Of these two, which did you prefer? Of those two specifically, extremely wicked, shockingly vile, or shockingly evil and vile, or... No Man of God. The extremely wicked one. Okay. I can't remember. The it's a long, <laughs> it's the, a long the, time. The title's a reference to the, the judge's sentencing yeah, of yeah. him. Yes. I liked No Man of God better, but I think they work as, a, which is funny that the that the directors are fighting. Yeah. I think it works as a perfect companion piece. Yeah. I think they, they show two completely different stories of the same character. I think if you start with extremely wicked and work your way right into... Mm-hmm. Uh, no Man of God. I think it. I think it flows pretty well. I'd start with the Ted Bunny tapes to give you the actual facts yes. around everything, so that you recognize the references in all the movies. Yeah. Then go on to Extremely Wicked because that one's just so much better to follow and sure. more. I don't want to say entertaining. 
because it doesn't glorify him in in the way that I think Amber Seeley thinks it does. It does show him as a smart and conniving person, being able to figure this stuff out. It also shows him as a as a proponent or uh, someone who um, um, was successful based on circumstance. They just got a lot of favors handed to him because of the who yeah. he was. Um, and then proceed to no man of God to give you like this kind of deep closing argument to the story. I don't really care about any of them. I did find it interesting to read more about and learn about him yeah. and everything that had pa- had happened. But you can't make this. You can't do a movie about uh, World War II and have Hitler in it and not talk about Hitler and not have Hitler be the focus <laughs> of the movie. Like that. That's just. I think that's just irresponsible to market yourself that way to say, "Oh, my movie's not about Ted Bundy, but he's one of the only two characters in the movie." <laughs> yeah, that's just bullshit. Well, that gets us to our final question yeah. of the episode. Is it worth your time? If you were on death row and had one movie left to watch, would it be No Man of God? Dear God, no. <laughs> Why would that be my last movie on earth? Absolutely not. But I think it is worth your time. I think if you're a true crime fan, it it, it can add a different perspective, I think, to this this human being. I think I think it is an interesting conversation. Do I think it's a masterpiece? Not not even close. Mm-hmm. I think I think it is thoroughly watchable. <laughs> High praise from Sam Brooker. <laughs> it's thoroughly watchable. Kate Brooker, first time ever on Time Sensitive. Is No Man of God worth your time? As a true crime fan, I say no. Okay. She's got the receipts, Sam. She does have the receipts. <laughs> there, like I said at the very beginning, there are so there's much better content out there. Go go read a book. Watch the Bundy tapes. I think that was a great documentary. Are you telling people on our movie podcast to go read a book? <laughs> you guys, stop watching movies right now. <laughs> Forget about this podcast and go read a damn book. <laughs> and you're not welcome back on the show. <laughs> I agree 100%. Watch Ted Bundy tapes. That was more, uh, more interesting and more fact-based and more academic than anything yes. else. And this just wasn't engaging to me. I, I, it's just nothing there. It was dull. Yeah. Sorry. It's a no for me, dog. <laughs> As depicted in No Man of God, the night before his execution, Ted Bundy confessed to 30 homicides, but the true scope of his terror remains unknown. Although director Amber Seeley preferred a more symbolic tribute to the women assaulted and killed by Bundy, we honor Bill Hagemeyer's pursuit to bring closure to the victims, survivors, and their families. So we'd like to give them the final word of this episode. Karen Sparks, Linda Ann Healy, Donna Gail Manson, Susan Elaine Rancourt, Roberta Kathleen Parks, Brenda Carol Ball, Georgian Hawkins, Janice Ott, Denise Marie Nasland, Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Smith, Loris Ann Amy, Carol Duranch, Deborah Jean Kent, Karen Eileen Campbell, Julie Cunningham, Denise Lynn Oliverson, Lynette Dawn Culver, Suzanne Curtis, Lisa Levy, Margaret Bowman, Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, Cheryl Thomas, and Kimberly Diane Leach. Thank you for listening to Time Sensitive and our review of Amber Seeley's No Man of God. We want to thank our special guest co-host, Kate Broker. We really appreciate you watching and reviewing with us. Before you leave, Ian and I have one final question. What What are are you you into? into? I've been really getting into the Great British Baking Show. I know I'm a little bit behind the (laughs) times here. I never watched that. 
Oh my gosh, it's so good. <laughs> it's just, it's so wholesome and peaceful. I love it. A nice contrast to this. <laughs> it, I, let me tell you, my dreams have been weird as hell. <laughs> Baking and murder. <laughs> Yikes. And I've also been watching this new show, Yellow Jackets, on Showtime. This looks so interesting. It is fascinating. Um, so it's about a women's high school soccer team that they're on their way to nationals, I think it is. And their plane goes down in the Ontario wilderness. And it's described as equal parts survival epic, psychological horror story, and a coming of age drama. Which just all together is it's fascinating. That's right up your alley. It really is. And it's coming out um, every Sunday. So currently, I, I think there's five episodes out. Mm-hmm. But I, I want it to all be released now. I need to know what the fuck is going on. Because it's <laughs> crazy. I heard it's like alive mixed with the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. It was alive. Oh, the show. Oh, my gosh. Also, I love that show alive. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this alive the movie with the, oh, the actual Chilean soccer team whose oh, plane yes. went down and they had to eat each other. Oh, that makes way more sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the game show where they're standing. Also, Same. there's a game show <laughs> called Alive and it's super fun it that wasn't my reference but i'm sure that'd be interesting to watch okay yes okay uh but this this uh, yellow jacket stars julia lewis uh christina ritchie mm-hmm. uh there's another big name in it too that i can't remember off the top of my head uh it's there's like four because the four of them are like this is post they had survived and now they're back yes. at it years later so it's kind of flashing it flashes back to before the plane crash happened uh-huh. and it um also like after the plane crash happened the aftermath of that and then in the future how they're coping with it and there's some shenanigans going on shenanigans is it is it melanie linsky melanie linsky that's correct yes connection to this episode because she was in i don't uh or uh i don't feel at home alone i don't feel alone in this what's the name of that damn movie (laughs) that really long (laughs) title she's also she's also in i don't feel at home in this world anymore with elijah wood oh cool and she's also that creepy neighbor from two and a half men yep that's true too (laughs) great career but well, thank you, Kate, so much. This was fun. Thank you True for crime me. on Time Sensitive. It's about time you joined us. I hope you'll have me back. You, if not, it's going to be really, really <laughs> awkward. Yeah. <laughs> We've been wanting you on the show for a long time, and you were the one who, who waited. Just want to point that That's out. That's true. I was nervous. Oh, it's a lot of pressure. Don't be. Hopefully, we'll, we'll just ease those nerves as we get yeah. you more and more acclimated. We'll yeah. do a comedy next time. Something a little bit yeah, lighter. Yeah, this was heavy. <laughs> A comedy be about a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, that's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but, but, I mean, this is what I love about our show is we got to dive into something I didn't know anything about. I couldn't even pick Ted Bunny out of a lineup if I saw him uh, in anything prior to last week. And now because of you, because of this movie, I've learned so much more, learned about chamber piece movies and got to dive into that for a fun time. There's there's just so much fun stuff to learn through movies. So keep watching, keep listening to our show. You can find our entire catalog of episodes like this one where we dive into some weird shit, um, <laughs> including under the radar movies uh, from Italy, from all over the world. We've done it all. We have a blast doing it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you might be listening to us right now. It's funny <laughs> how that works. And you can interact with Time Sensitive on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us at TS Movie Pod. That's at T S M O V I E P O D. 
And a quick favor, if you enjoy Time Sensitive and you want more content from us, or you really like Kate Broker and think she should be back on the show, please leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes. It means a lot to us, and it's a nice way to let other people discover our show and all of our serial true killer crime content. Ooh, that was a lot. That was just word soup, and I love it. Blah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, for Time Sensitive, I'm Sam. And I'm Ian. Take care, everybody. Hi, I'm Mark, and I'm one of the hosts of Massive Late Fee. Do you remember Blockbuster? Well, we do, and we racked up a lot of late fees there. That's why we're glad there's things like Netflix, Hulu, and Blockbuster has died, mostly because of us. We cover streaming shows and pretty much whatever we want. Join us every Thursday as we talk TV and movies on Massive Late Fee. You can find us at Massive Late Fee on Twitter, Massive Late Fee on Facebook. You can email the show at MassiveLateFee at gmail.com. Gmail.com, and you can find us at MySpace, Massive Late Fee. Massive Late Fee, the best podcast we can think of.